Good morning. Uh, as Phil said, I'm Moses Shoyol. I'm one of the lay pastors here, uh, and I'm excited to bring you this morning's message. Uh, as Phil mentioned, next week we're going to start in on a series on Acts, which we just read together as a church. And this series is going to take us through the big themes of Acts, the high notes, understanding how the Spirit moved in the early church, and how we can apply the lessons of the early church to ourselves as individuals and to our church in this season of transition. And as much as Acts is the story of the early church, it's the story of a few prominent characters in the early church. First, there's Jesus' disciples, Peter and John. You got some Philip sprinkled in there. And then, as we get towards the middle of the book, we, start, we meet this guy named Saul. And Saul is presiding over the execution of one of Jesus' followers, Stephen. And then the next chapter, he's persecuting Jesus' followers, imprisoning them, slaughtering them. It gets really ugly. And then in the next chapter, in dramatic fashion, he has his own encounter with Jesus and himself becomes a follower of Jesus. And four chapters later, the story of Acts becomes the story of this guy, Saul, whose name is now Paul, and all that he did to announce Jesus' kingdom, to plant churches all over the Roman Empire, and all the persecution and trouble that came along with that. And so today, I want to start at the end. Because at the end of his life, Paul tells us what's been motivating him all along. He's writing to Timothy at the end of his life. This is his last letter. And he tells us what his life has been all about. And he says it in the verses you just heard read, which I'll read again. And now the time is fast approaching for my release from this life. And I am ready to be offered as a sacrifice. I have fought an excellent fight. I have finished my full course with all my might. And I've kept my heart full of faith. There's a crown of righteousness waiting in heaven for me, and I know that my Lord will reward me on his day of righteous judgment. And this crown is not only waiting for me, but for all who love and long for his appearing. And I'll read that last line again, because that's where we'll focus today. A crown is not only waiting for me, but for all who love and long for his appearing. For Paul, this was the entire ball game, his love and his longing for Jesus' appearing. We know this from other things that Paul wrote. In Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He essentially is saying, if I go on living, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, advancing God's kingdom, declaring the glory of Jesus. But if I die, I get to be with Jesus, and that's even better. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And as we'll see throughout the book of Acts over the coming weeks, because of Paul's zealous love and longing for Jesus' appearing, he's probably the single human being who did the most to advance God's kingdom throughout the Roman Empire, despite persecution, despite suffering. Why was he the most prolific church planter? Why did he write most of the New Testament? Why did he endure all this suffering and persecution even to the point of death? Paul himself was also martyred. Why was it all worth it? Because he loved and longed for Jesus' appearing. So I want to spend this morning unpacking this, that phrase in two sections. First, Jesus' appearing. What is it? What does it mean? What did Paul mean by it? And second, loving and long for, longing for it. What does that mean and how can we do it? So first, Jesus' appearing. What does it mean? What is Paul referring to when he talks about Jesus' appearing? And Paul's really referring to two appearings of Jesus. 
his first coming, which happened over 2,000 years ago and a few decades before Paul is writing this, and then Jesus' second appearing, his second coming, which is going to happen at some point in the future. And it's important to reiterate for all of us who now take it for granted having heard this doctrine over and over again, but what Paul had worked out through intense study and came to deeply treasure, which is that Jesus' appearing changed and will change everything. His first appearing started to change everything. It was a paradigm shift. And his second appearing will complete the paradigm shift with Jesus' kingdom reigning over all of creation. So I'll take that in turn, his first appearing and then his second appearing. What happened at Jesus' first appearing? Before we get into that, the backstory is critical because if you want a quick summary of humanity, the story of humanity, the story of the Old Testament, the story of God's followers up until this point, it can be summed up in one word, and that's rebellion. It's a back and forth story of God blessing and rescuing people and people in turn responding with deciding to do things our own way, ignoring God's rules and laws for our lives. Happened in the Garden of Eden. God blesses Adam and Eve with abundance, and they rebel and do the one thing he told them not to do. After he rescues the Israelites from Egypt, God's people rebel on their way to the Promised Land, and they have to wander the desert for 40 years. Once they're in the Promised Land, They obey for a little bit, but then over time, they start to do things their own way. They start to worship idols. They oppress the poor. God gets so fed up that he brings in other nations to conquer them and send them into exile. And though he punishes his people, he makes clear through his prophets that he's not going to punish them forever. In Jeremiah 31, God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with them. Not according to the covenant that I had made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And the burning question for everyone was how? How was God going to make good on this promise of a new covenant? How is he going to put the law on his people's hearts? How is he going to make it so people would willingly obey him? How is he going to permanently forgive sin? How is he going to do all of this? And the answer came gloriously in Jesus' first appearing. Jesus made this promise possible through his first appearing, When he took on human form, dwelled among his people, demonstrated his divinity by performing miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, walking on water. He demonstrated real authority over the scriptures and over God's law, the way he spoke about God's law and the spirit of God's law, the way he challenged how the religious leaders had perverted God's law to make it more of a burden than the treasure that it actually was. He fulfilled God's law following it perfectly living a perfect, sinless life. He was executed on a cross between two actual criminals and in so doing, took on the punishment for all of humanity. He was buried, resurrected on the third day. He appeared to his followers. He ascended to heaven. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he made it possible for anyone who believes in him to be made right with God. 
to have our sins completely wiped out, to be in real relationship with our creator, to receive God's spirit, to become God's adopted children. That was his first appearing and it really did change everything and the biggest way it changed everything was how it dealt with sin. Jesus' death, resurrection, and then the sending of the Holy Spirit was the beginning of the turning of the tide in humanity's battle against sin. Because all along, our biggest problem, the thing that's caused the worst situations in all our lives on a personal, family, community, national, and global level, has been sin, our rebellion, our choosing to do things our own way rather than God's way. And when Jesus came... He made it possible for God to forgive and forget our rebellion and blot out our sins forever. His appearing changed everything and created a way to actually be made right with God, to have real relationship with him by trusting in Jesus. And on top of that, he sent the Holy Spirit to all who trust in Jesus. So not only was it possible to be made right with God, it was possible to stay right with God, to have his spirit dwell in us, to teach us God's ways, to actually write his laws on our hearts and minds and empower us to obey God's leading willingly. This was a huge deal, and it's easy for us to take for granted, especially if we've grown up hearing it a lot, especially if it's become rote doctrine in our minds, but it was a huge deal for Paul and for everyone who discovered it for the first time, how Jesus' appearing changed everything. And it wasn't just his first appearing that would change everything, His first appearing was just the beginning. It was just the starting gun. If his first appearing was the beginning of a paradigm shift and the dawning of a new kingdom, his second appearing would be the culmination of that paradigm shift. The new kingdom completely reigning over all of creation. And many things are going to happen at Jesus' second appearing, but two in particular I want to emphasize this morning. One, paradise is going to be restored through the complete eradication of sin and all of its horrendous effects. And this is illustrated so beautifully in Revelation 21, where John says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. In this paradise, sin is completely eradicated and all of its effects are completely eradicated. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more division and strife, no more violence, no more oppression, no more disease. Jesus' second appearing will be the complete end of sin. Once and for all, humanity's greatest enemy will be defeated and eradicated. But the other thing that's going to happen at Jesus' second appearing is an accounting. Jesus is going to hold his people to account. And this is illustrated so beautifully in one of Jesus' most famous parables in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Jesus compares his second coming to a master who's gone away on a long journey. He's entrusted some money to a few of his servants. And he comes back and he asks them to give an account. To one servant, he gave five talents, five units of money. To another, he gave two. And to another, he gave one. And the one he gave five produced an additional five. The one he gave two produced an additional two. But the one he gave one hid it in the ground 
and produce nothing additional. And to those first two, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Enter into the joy of your master. And to the last servant, he says, take away even what he has and throw him out. And all I want to emphasize here is in this accounting, Jesus is going to look at what he's entrusted to his servants and what they've produced according to what he deems valuable and faithful. And those who are faithful will be rewarded and will experience a deeper, more joyful relationship with their master. And those who are not faithful will experience some level of loss and heartache. So that's Jesus' appearing. That's what Paul means. He means Jesus' first appearing, which is, was the complete forgiveness of sins to restore relationship with him and the sending of the Holy Spirit to empower us to stay right with God. And it's his second appearing, which is the restoration of paradise through the complete eradication of sin and an accounting where the faithful are gonna be rewarded and going to experience deeper joy with our master and those who aren't faithful will experience some level of loss and heartache. So now that we have a firm understanding of what Paul means when he talks about Jesus' appearing, we can figure out what it means to love and long for it. And there are many ways to love and long for Jesus' appearing, but two in particular I want to emphasize this morning that we can emulate from Paul's life and ministry. The first thing is that Paul completely divested himself of the things of this world. Paul stopped looking to the things of this world for his satisfaction. He followed Jesus' teaching to store up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Paul didn't care about things like status and even his freedom or safety, things like pleasure or money or possessions or people's approval or power. The only thing Paul cared about was following Jesus. Again, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He made his life a living sacrifice. And then he himself was sacrificed and executed. He endured all the suffering we talked about a few weeks ago, beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, stonings, nakedness, hunger, illness. Why? Because all he cared about was following Jesus. And if that meant enduring all of that, it was worth it. Can we say the same? As we look at how we spend our resources, our time, our energy, our money, what do our lives say that we care about? Is our time and energy spent with Jesus just a couple hours on Sunday morning and a few minutes each weekday? Are we giving up anything to follow Jesus or are we just pretending? Do our lives look any different from those who don't claim to be followers of Jesus? Are we also chasing money and status like they are? Are we also numbing ourselves with booze and entertainment and social media like they are? Are we also obsessed and focused on what the news and media tells us to focus on like they are? Are we also too busy to care for the poor and the oppressed like they are? Do our lives show that we care about the things of this world instead of Jesus? If they do, then we can't say that we love his appearing because his appearing is the end of all of those things. His appearing is the beginning of a new and better thing. If any wasn't one is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. If we're focused on those other things, we'll miss out on Jesus. 
we're focused on those other things, we won't be eager for him to come. We're fine if he waits just a little bit longer. If we're focused on those other things, we don't love and long for his appearing. Now, divesting ourselves of the things of this world is really hard work. It requires a lot of intentionality. It requires a lot of time just spent alone with God, in private. But if we're willing to do the work, truly willing to give up being invested in the trappings of this world, he'll help us and meet us there. He helped me with this several years ago when I decided, you know what, it was time. If God wasn't telling me to do it, I didn't want to do it. So I sat down one evening, I opened a Google Doc, and I listed out every single category of my life, from faith to finances, family, relationships, work, recreation, all of it. And instead of looking at these things as fulfilling in and of themselves, I said, you know what? I only want to be fulfilled in these things if Jesus is in it, however Jesus wants me to be fulfilled in these things. It's for every category, looked at scripture, What did scripture say about spiritual life and spiritual disciplines? What did scripture say about my finances? I was single at the time. What did scripture say about dating? What did it say about the friendships I should be investing in? You'd be surprised that the Bible speaks into every single aspect of our lives if we'll look hard enough and if we'll let it. And as a result, God helped me change a lot. Some of the things were things I could implement immediately, like spiritual disciplines or the friendships I invested in. Some happened over time, like the way I interacted with my family or the way I viewed money or my career. And let me be clear, it's not like doing that exercise automatically made me not care about the things of this world. I still get sucked in from time to time. But it was a huge first step towards having my heart more invested in heaven and less invested in this world. If we really love Jesus' appearing, our hearts will long for the things of his kingdom. The things of this world won't matter so much the same way they didn't matter to Paul. Another way to demonstrate our love and longing for Jesus' appearing is to tell others about him. Now, for some reason, this one is really, really hard for us. It's easy and straightforward and other things that we love and care about, but with Jesus, it's hard. If we find a new song or a new movie or a new book, we can't help but share it with others. If we find a new workout or product or app or service or restaurant, we really can't help share it with others. When Mega Millions is over a billion dollars, we really can't help share it with others. It is, is it still over a billion dollars? I don't know, but I've been talking about it with a lot of people. And... (laughs) When we find something we enjoy or something that we think will make our lives better, we can't help but share it. We don't want our friends to miss out. We want to share the experience with them. Our experience of the thing is enhanced by the fact that others are experiencing it too. And the crazy thing is Jesus is infinitely better than all of those things. If we really loved him, we'd share him in spite of the taboos, in spite of what people might think. Because of Jesus, people can have a deep and abiding relationship with their creator no matter what their life has looked like before. How can we not share that? Because of Jesus, people can experience love and joy and peace and satisfaction in a way they never have before. How can we not share that? Because they'll judge us. 
because they'll think we're crazy or stupid. Paul didn't care. Literally, as soon as he could, as soon as he met Jesus, the next possible day, he was in synagogues talking about Jesus. When he's brought before the authorities to give a defense, he's on trial, and he interrupts his defense to tell the governor about Jesus. He can't help it. At one point, Paul says, I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. By all means. There wasn't anything that Paul wasn't going to do for the sake of more people knowing Jesus. In many cases, that meant doing the hard work of getting to know people, understanding their circumstances, understanding their sorrows and difficulties, and in that context, pointing to Jesus as the only solution and and only solution to their problems and the satisfaction of their deepest desires. But in other cases, Paul doesn't even need the context of relationship. He goes into city after city, finds a public square, and he just starts spouting off about Jesus. And by the way, most people don't like it. Most make fun of him or attack him. He gets run out of town on more than one occasion. But often there's a handful that are a little bit intrigued and eventually recognize the gift that is Jesus. By the way, in both kinds of scenarios, all Paul does, by the way, is tell his own story. He says, this is my background, this is how I grew up, this is what I was up to before, and then I met Jesus, and this is how Jesus changed me. And that's all we have to do. I'll admit, this is really hard for me personally. I want people to like me and not make fun of me. I want people to think I'm with it. I don't want people to think I'm a weirdo or worse. I don't want to be automatically associated with all the baggage that comes along with publicly professing Jesus. But here's how it looked for me a few months ago. I was coming back from a bachelor party and was sitting in the airport with one of my buddies and he was, we were waiting for our flights and he was telling me about how stressed he was. He actually asked me a question I've never heard anyone who's not a believer ask me. He was like, how would you rate your level of peace right now? Uh, and I said, I'm actually pretty good despite all the craziness of my life. And then I'm sitting on the plane waiting for it to take off. And I just text him, hey, dude, I've been thinking a lot about our conversation. And I felt compelled to send a few scriptures on peace that have been helpful to me in case there's a possibility they might be helpful to you in some way. And I said in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, the verse is about, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will wear, but seek first the kingdom. And I said in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. And he thanked me and said they were helpful, but to be clear about the outcome, it's not as if my friend became a believer as a result. Honestly, I don't even know if the verses actually helped or if he was just being polite. And everything in me resisted doing this. This was so not natural for me. I felt silly. I felt a little bit embarrassed. But none of those things is important because the important thing is that I told the truth about the power of Jesus to bring peace in my friend's life. I told the truth about how I had experienced Jesus' peace in my own life. When we talk about telling others about Jesus, it's just telling the truth about our own experiences with him. Has Jesus brought you peace? 
Tell your friend the next time they're stressed. Has Jesus brought you joy? Tell your friend the next time they're depressed. Has Jesus loved you? Tell your friend the next time they're lonely. Has he healed you? Has he blessed you? Has he helped you quit doing something you know you needed to quit doing because it was hurting you? All we have to do is tell people what Jesus has done for us. That's all he asks. Now, I think about the story in the Gospels of the man who was blind from birth, and Jesus heals the guy, and the religious authorities feel the need to investigate because that's what they do when Jesus starts causing trouble. And they ask him all these questions. They ask him, was he really blind from birth? They ask his parents, was he really blind from birth? And then they start interrogating Jesus' character. I mean, he must be a sinner. He healed on the Sabbath. What's his doctrine? And the man has to stop them. And he says, listen, I don't know anything about the guy. I don't know his character. I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't know his doctrine. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. If you were blind and now you can see, if you were depressed and now you have joy, if you were stressed and now you have peace, if you were dead and now you're alive, tell the blind and depressed and stressed and dead people in your life who gave you your sight and your joy and your peace and your life. That's how we love Jesus' appearing the way that Paul did. We tell everyone about what Jesus has done for us. So those are the ways to love Jesus' appearing, to divest ourselves completely of the things of this world, to tell others about him. As we close, I want to revisit the parable of the talents. Quick recap, three different servants were entrusted with different sums of money to manage by the master. The first and second produce a return with the money. The third digs a hole in the ground and produces no return. The master applauds the first two and tells them, well done, good and faithful servants. He reprimands the third and calls him wicked and lazy. The followers of Jesus who love his appearing by divesting themselves of this world, by telling others about him, those are the ones who are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Paul was one of those. He knew it. He could say with confidence, I fought a good fight. I finished my race. I have loved his appearing. I know he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant to me. I'm going to enter into the joy of my master. But those who don't love Jesus' appearing, who don't divest of the things of this world, who don't tell others about him, they're going to miss out. They won't hear well done. They won't get to experience all of the joy of our master. So go on an imaginative journey for me for a minute here. Imagine Jesus is coming back in exactly a year. And imagine your life continues on the exact same trajectory it's been on for the past year. Do you welcome his appearing, knowing with confidence you're going to hear well done? Do you dread it? We welcome it, praise God. That's awesome. Keep doing what you're doing, I guess. If you dread it, and by the way, I can think of a few areas of in my life that make me dread it right now. Let's figure out what needs to change. Let's ask God to help us so that we can love his appearing. Let's pray.
Father, your appearing changed everything. There's none like you. There's no one like you. And your appearing made it possible for us to fully experience all of you. Our hearts are fickle, though. Sometimes we love you as much as we should. Sometimes we love you with all of our hearts and and minds and souls and strength. And sometimes we don't. So, Father, I just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will empower us, that you will change us, that you will work in our hearts, that you will help us love your appearing, that you will help us so that we all hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.